The following audio is from a sermon series for the season of Advent entitled The Birth of the Peacemaker. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess. Give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Today marks the beginning of Advent. Uh, we are taking a break from our series uh, through the book of First Peter uh, to, to detour into a four-week series called The Birth of the Peacemaker. Although, uh, before we jump from the tracks of First Peter, I, I did think that, that First Peter 1 verse 10 is an incredibly fitting um, scripture to remind us of what this season is about. So let me read this to you. First Peter 1 verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things to which angels long to look. See, what Peter was saying there is that, that the prophets had been longing for the day when God would break into this world, 
when the Savior of the world would be sent. And so today, in this season of Advent, we do look back to the arrival of Jesus when he broke the plane of human existence 2,000 years ago. Right? We sing Christmas hymns about the Savior child who was born in Bethlehem. We rejoice in the arrival of our rescuer. But this is also a season where we look forward simultaneously. We look back and we look forward where we're longing for the second advent or arrival. That's what the word advent means. It means arrival. Longing for that second arrival of Jesus. Because here's the thing. The gospel is not just Jesus came to die for your sins. The gospel is Jesus came to die for your sins and to make all things new. To bring life back into your lungs. To restore you to the beauty that God had originally intended for you. And so this is what we do. We look forward to Jesus' second coming. We know that he is coming again. And this time when he comes again, he will bring heaven down with him. Heaven and the earth will be united as one and will experience the fullness of salvation. Now, Advent makes us aware of a tension that we live in as Christians every day. It's this tension of the already, but not yet. And here is where this tension is revealed. Even in this Sunday morning, as we sing to our Savior, sin still looms in our hearts. Right? Jesus has already come. He's already prayed, paid the price for our sins, but we are still waiting. There's a peace that's not yet accomplished where the fullness of salvation is available for us. And so this is the tension of Advent. We rejoice in the first coming. We long for the second coming of Jesus. And so in our hearts we sing joy to the world while also singing come again thou long expected Jesus. Now, our sermon series for the next four weeks is, like I said, it's called Birth of the Peacemaker. And what this sermon series is meant to do is to make this tension that we live in non-ignorable. See, Jesus, who we sang about this morning as the Prince of Peace, or, or as the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 9, labeled him the Prince of Peace, right? He is the one who brings us real peace, true peace, the only kind of peace that can come from God himself. But at the same time, Jesus says in Matthew 10, he says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is, some of you might be looking up at our, our signage this morning and wondering, well, this birth of the peacemaker, why is there a sword involved with this? And this is why. There's, there's a tension. There's a juxtaposition here. You're probably wondering, is it true? Can, can Jesus be the prince of peace but also come with a sword? Is this... Is this accurate? Which one is it? And what we're getting at here with this series is that as you study your way through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as you study Jesus' life, you'll see that whenever people interact with Jesus, he brings confrontation. And depending upon their response to Jesus, they will either find the true peace that their heart is desiring or they'll abandon it. You see, here's the thing. Until Jesus has caused disruption in your life, 
you'll never know the peace that he offers. So over the next four weeks, we're going to look at a few of these interactions that people had with Jesus and how he confronted everyday normal people, people who are probably very similar to you and me. And we're going to see how some people responded to the the confrontation by rejecting Jesus, by dismissing him, saying, ah, I'll, I'll pass this time. And some people grab onto him. They see what Jesus offers, and he says, I'm not, I'm not letting go of you. What we're going to see is that Jesus is the only place where we can find a peace that surpasses all understanding. But if you want to experience that peace that Jesus offers everyone, you must first experience a disruption. Now, to help us see where, what I'm getting at today, I'd like for you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 2. You saw we had two scriptures read today. And let me explain here what, what's happening. Luke chapter 2, that's uh, towards the back end of your Bible, um, beginning of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, yep, so Matthew, Mark, Luke. I don't need to say John. Oh, I got to flip there too. So Now, what's, what's happening here with Luke chapter 2 my son has a toy, and on that toy, there's a, uh, a transparent strip of some sort. I, c- I can't even remember what toy this is. But he's got this toy. He's got a transparent strip, and, and, and that strip is tinted blue. And so what he'll do, he'll pick up that toy, and he'll hold it up to his eyes and say, Dad, look, everything's blue. Now, Luke chapter 2 is meant to be this, this lens that we're going to look through. It's going to help us allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, to make sense of what's going on here in a way that may, may ne- not necessarily be tapped into if we were just reading the main passage that we have today. There's some nuance here. Luke 2 is going to help us see into the hearts of the people that Jesus is interacting with. So earlier, before we reach our passage here in Luke chapter 2, uh, what's happening earlier is this man named Simeon. Now, Simeon is a devout, a righteous man. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, at this point in time, in this time of history, Israel is in a very tumultuous time. Religiously, politically, socially, things are not uh, all fine and dandy. Things are actually very complex. And so what Simeon was longing for, what he's hoping for, was the day when, when Israel would be restored. When the country, the people of God, would be restored to the place that they once were, to to their glory. But here they are in a time where they're under Roman rule. Religiously, things are kind of a mess. Socially, things aren't going that great. And so he's longing for this day of consolation. Now, God graciously reveals to this man, Simeon, through the the Holy Spirit, that he would not die until he saw the man who would bring about the consolation of Israel. He told him, there's a rescuer coming, and you will see him before you die. And so the Holy Spirit prompts Simeon one day to go to the temple, right? Maybe you've experienced this before, right? The Holy Spirit just puts this, like, burden in you, maybe to call a friend or, or to reach out to somebody, to do something that that you wouldn't normally do. And so this is what happened with Simeon. The Holy Spirit prompted him to go to the temple. He goes to the temple. And as he's walking around the temple, he he sees this young family. 
got a young baby, and they're probably stumbling over themselves trying to figure out how to, you know, how to get that car seat strapped onto the camel or something. <laughs> Dropping bottles, all the, all the mess. And he sees this young family, and he instantly knows why he's there that day. See, Mary and Joseph were bringing baby Jesus to the temple to be consecrated in accordance with the law. And so Simeon sees this family, he sees this baby, and he runs over and he scoops him up in his arms and he just gushes over him. And he's not like, oh, what a cute baby. You know, I think that's what we all do. We've got a lot of cute babies here. Like everybody's picks up babies. Oh, what a cute baby. No, no, he says, he says this. He says, this is the rescuer. He says, let your servant depart in peace. He knew in that moment, that baby that was in his arms was the rescuer. He knew that the consolation was coming, which brings us to verse 33 in Luke chapter 2, where he, where, where, where he says this, and his, that's Jesus's, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said to him, right? When, when Simeon says, this is the rescuer, I can depart in peace. This is the salvation God has promised. And so they're stunned. They're shocked with this, this stranger, right? Just, just remember Mary at this point has had an, an angel appear to her and said that you're going to be pregnant with the Savior of the world, right? That's something that maybe you can chalk up to, you know, bad pizza one night or something. And now the stranger comes up and says, this is the Savior. Hmm. She is shocked. And then Simeon goes on to say something that's kind of puzzling. It makes sense when you go back, right? As, as from our perspective, it's going to make sense to us as we read it. But for Mary, in this moment, this is quite puzzling. He says this, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, part of that, there in the parentheses, if you're looking at your Bible, there's something there in parentheses about a sword piercing through your own soul. Right? That, that's a little nugget that's just for Mary. Right, what Simeon's talking about there is, is on the day when, uh, of Jesus' crucifixion where she's standing at the foot of the cross looking up at her son. She feels the agony of sorrow pierce her heart. So that piece is just for Mary. That's, that's a special thing for her. But there's something that's universal in this prophecy that Simeon has. He says that Jesus will be responsible for the fall and for the rising of many. He says he'll be a sign that will be opposed. Now, we've, we've heard of, of this when we were studying 1 Peter, that Jesus, right, this, this cornerstone that was rejected by some, and for others, he'll, he'll become the foundation Right, Simeon says, right, some people are going to look at him and say, no, no thanks. I'll pass. Or some of them will be like, this is what I want to build my life on. So in other words, what, what Simeon is saying here, that Jesus is going to have a mixed response. That some people will love him and others are going to hate him. Now, some of you might be thinking, you know what? I'm pretty cool with Jesus. I mean, I'm pretty neutral. I don't really, like, love him, love him, and I don't really, like, hate him. I'm just kind of, like, on the fence. Like, take it, leave it. 
But R.C. Sproul says this, which is just convicting to me. He says, with Christ, there is no neutrality. When a person encounters Christ, he either is for him or against him. He either trips over him or is established by him, which fulfills, of course, the prophecy of Simeon. So some will embrace him, some will reject this Christ. And Simeon says that how people respond to Jesus, the way that they respond to Jesus, will reveal something about them. It will reveal the thoughts of their hearts. So there's something about our interaction with with the interactions that Jesus has with people throughout the Gospels that tells us something about their heart and probably something about your heart. See, Jesus has a way of revealing our fears, our longings, desires, our anxieties, our hopes, our insecurities. See, a lot of us are trying really hard to cover these things up. I think that's the way a lot of us operate in life. We're just trying to self-protect. We're trying to keep these things under wraps. But here, when you have an encounter with Jesus... He pulls the tablecloth off. Right? He, can, he can look right under the table. This is exactly what happens in the famous story that we're going to sink our teeth in for the, for the next however many minutes we're here. But well, this is the story of the rich young ruler. Right? Many of us are probably familiar with this, or at least parts of it. It's, it's in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, if you flip to the left in your Bibles, I wish I knew the, Bible, the page number for your pew Bibles. I don't, though. My bad. And in this story, what we see here, right, looking through the lens of Luke chapter 2, we're going to see this rich young ruler meet the peacemaker. We're going to get introduced to this man known as the rich young ruler. Now, let me just say a little bit about this man to help kind of frame up the story. He is a highly successful individual. We're talking about a, a competent guy, He's got his stuff together. He's respectable. He's charming. He's probably the kind of guy that you want your daughter to date. Look, he's, he's spiritually minded. He's moral. He knows his Bible. Right? I would have a hunch that this guy was probably like the, the kid's ministry poster child. This is a success story here. And even though he's wealthy and youthful, there is something that he just feels a void. There's something that, that escapes him. See, everything in his life is taken care of, but he's longing for this assurance of the life that is to come. He comes looking uh, for the answer of how to lay hold of eternal life. And so he comes to Jesus, and take a look at verse 16 here. He says, and behold, a man came to him, that's Jesus, saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would, en- if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, I just want to say up front, 
There is so much to dive into here today, but I really want to just focus on, uh, like we could go focus on how Peter interacts with Jesus after this, what Jesus is really teaching about. Like th- this, is a, this is actually a series of, of events that Jesus is going, if you go through the book of Matthew, and so there's a sense that I can't do justice to what we're trying to do here this morning, but I just want to focus on what's going on with this rich young ruler, how Jesus interacts with him. See, he comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to, to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do? And, and it's interesting here because Jesus doesn't say, oh, you need to just go say a prayer. Right? That's not what Jesus says. See, Jesus is going to expose this rich young ruler's heart. He's going to find out if, this, if he actually means the question that he's asking. Right? Does he really want eternal life? No. Jesus says, if you want to have eternal life, you must keep the commandments. Being this kid's ministry poster child, this, this rich young ruler would have been very familiar with the Ten Commandments. And probably the, the 613 commandments that are attached to those commandments that Jesus references. But just to be sure, maybe looking for a loophole, the rich young ruler asked Jesus, well, which commandments are you talking about? So he, here's the clarity he asked for in verse, verse 18. He says to him, which ones? And Jesus says, well, here's a few. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now Jesus intentionally responds with commandments that are others-focused. Now if you remember back in our series in Exodus where we actually went through each commandment one by one, You remember that the first four are sort of oriented towards God, right? These are my duties toward God, and and the last six are my duties toward man. And here Jesus, when he's talking about the commandments, he's specifically speaking, bringing up these commandments that this rich young ruler should be enacting upon towards other people, right? Summarize and love your neighbor as yourself. But what Jesus is doing here, he's being strategic. He's omitting the first commandment that all of these other commandments flow out of. And that is this, in my words, that God would be supreme in your heart. That's the number one commandment. Here it is for real. There shall be no other gods before me, right? Here's my translation. God would be supreme in your heart. Now, what does it mean to be supreme? Obviously, it means for something to be above all others, to be ultimate. That that one thing would have the highest ranking, the number one spot in your heart. Now, revealing his naivety, the rich young ruler says in verse 20, it's almost comical. He says to him, all these things I have kept, what do I still lack? He says, of course I've done that. I've done all that stuff since I was a kid, right? What we see here is just a, a lack of self-realization. It's like when I send my three-year-old to clean up his toys, right? Ten minutes passes. I say, hey, Kuiper, how you coming in there? He's like, I'm all done. And he, he has this mindset that, that these seven blocks that he played with just a little bit closer to the toy box, right? He didn't even put them away. He just got them a little bit closer. That in his mind, he's like, I've done it. The room's clean. He is oblivious. He lacks a self-realization. 
The rich young ruler had left so much undone, but he is certain that he has kept them. He might even say he's a master of them. So let's just for a moment entertain his oblivious notion. Right? Let's, just, let's just assume that he has kept the law since he thinks he has done so since a child. This rich young ruler's response is very, very revealing of the life of moralism. He says, I've done it all, but what else should I do? There's always that feeling that if you're living a moralistic lifestyle that you have to do something else. It's not just one thing. Right? I do this, oh, and there's this next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. It's almost as if he thought that just one more good deed would really solidify him. Then he would be assured that the kingdom of heaven would be his. But what he's finding is that even keeping the laws is like a treadmill. Like your legs keep moving, but you're not going anywhere. I think that's, a, that, that's an experience that many people have had when it comes to religion. We think, we think that Christianity is about doing, 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 doing. And that's kind of, when you look at what Jesus says here, he's like, keep all the commands. It's kind of like what he's saying. But what he's saying here is he's showing just how impossible it is. His question, his commandment to say, keep the commandments, he's not just saying, just keep going, try harder, try harder, do more. What he's trying to show this rich young ruler is that he is incapable of doing it. See, there's a reason that God has written on our hearts this standard of perfection, right? this desire that we have to be acceptable. It's to show us that because of our sinful nature, we cannot keep it. We can't maintain it. And so there's always this feeling that we have, if, if we have this moralistic mindset, that we must always try to overcompensate for our failures, always try to cover up our shortcomings, always going, going, going. See, this is what the rich young ruler is feeling. He's the guy who has it all together, yet he still feels incomplete. There, he feels like there's unfinished business, which is what warrants Jesus' response to him in verse 21, take a look. And Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect. Now, this word perfection here, to, to be perfect, he's, he's not necessarily speaking about being morally perfect. Really what this, this, this idea of perfect embodies is the idea of wholeness. If you want to be complete, if you want to feel whole, if you want to feel like you really are at a place where everything is put together. Jesus says, I, I, I see that there's a void in your life. And you see it, I see it, we both see it. He said, I, I know that you feel incomplete. And this is really ironic, you guys, because here it is, like even today, young guys fantasize about being rich and rich guys fantasize about being young. Right? This guy's the package. He's got it together, but he still feels incomplete, feels like there's something missing. And then Jesus says something that just seems backwards to us because he says that if you want to feel complete, if you want to be whole, what you need to do is get rid of everything. That's what he says in verse 21. He keeps going. Jesus says to them, if you would be perfect, go sell 
what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when the rich young ruler heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus says, give your money to the poor, get rid of that, and then you'll have a heavenly treasure. But the thing about this is, it's not just offering him a treasure that's stored up in heaven. He's offering him relationship with himself. He says, go sell, you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus is inviting him into his life. And as bad as this rich young ruler wanted, the assurance of eternal life, right? Jesus laid it out what he needs to do. He walks away sorrowful. He can't do it. Now, some people might look at this passage and say, well, Jesus is actually really hard on rich people. Right? He's got this standard for wealthy people that's up here, and, and he's a little more gracious with the people who aren't quite as wealthy. Right? After all, Jesus does say in verse 23 that it's only with difficulty that a rich person will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of the needle. Now to the disciples that are there listening to this interaction, they're shocked. They are shocked because this blows up their whole paradigm for the world. Because in a world that they live in, money equals power and power equals access. In a society, right, much like ours, money can get you anything. See, we always think this, like, when I have this money, when I have this in my bank account, then this will happen. Right? There's this, this idea that we got to grab a hold of money, and then doors open for us, because that's what money does. Money opens doors, so if you're poor, there are some things that are closed to you. They, they feel off limits. Now, people in that day thought heaven was like that, that money is evidence that you were blessed by God, that, that you had God's prosperity and favor. Therefore, that should equate to the doors of heaven being opened to you. But then Jesus blows up this paradigm. He says, actually, the wealthy, for the wealthy, the doors to heaven tend to be closed. Now entering, entering the kingdom isn't difficult because there's a certain number attached to your bank account. It's not because you're willing to hustle. Entering the kingdom is a matter of what is supreme in your heart. Because money can open doors, money can be the biggest competitor for the supreme place in your heart. Money can get you places without God. In fact, the best way to say it would be that money actually can become your God. Now right here is where we see the fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy. Remember back in, in Luke ch chapter 2? This is where the prophecy is, is, is revealed, is manifested in, in the life of the rich young ruler. His heart is exposed. See, this, this rich young ruler walks away with sorrow because he realized maybe, I don't know what, to what extent, 
But to some degree, he realized that money was the supreme thing in his heart. And because money was sitting in the number one spot, there was no room for Jesus to move in. So much so that this rich young ruler was willing to walk away from Jesus, walk away from the promise of eternal life, walk away from the kingdom of heaven, just to keep what he had clenched in his fists. And in this moment, the rich young ruler experienced something that he was not accustomed to to experiencing. Access denied. He had been successful all his life. He was used to his money getting him places, money and power, influence. But this time he was denied because the love of money loomed larger in his heart than his love for God. Now, don't be mistaken here. See, don't make Jesus out to be the bad guy. Jesus wasn't the one who said access denied. The rich young ruler walked away himself. Jesus extended an invitation. Sell what you have, give to the poor, find a better treasure, and even better than that, have relationship with me. That's what Jesus was offering him. And he walks away discouraged. His preoccupation with worldly riches made the kingdom of heaven seem beyond his reach. Now, this goes right back to the first commandment I mentioned earlier that Jesus Jesus had omitted, right? There's some strategy here to what Jesus is is doing here with this rich young ruler. He's allowing room for some sort of self-realization that obviously this guy didn't have. By Jesus asking these questions, by proposing this offer, This rich young ruler has something to think about. See, he confronts what's in the rich young ruler's heart. See, the rich young ruler thought the kingdom of heaven was about obeying better, doing more. And Jesus says, no, no, no. The kingdom of heaven is about what you treasure supremely in your heart. Now, I think that is what Jesus wants to do with us today. Some of you might not be familiar with Jesus getting up in your face. Jesus wants to get up in your face in the gracious, most gracious way possible. He wants to confront you about that thing that's looming supreme in your heart. The thing that you're holding on to that keeps you from clinging to Jesus. Maybe it's money. Maybe maybe the rich young ruler resonates with you. Maybe you don't have money, so that's not the thing. But maybe it's family, your family. You've got to hold on to your family. That's the ultimate thing in your life. Your career aspirations. Maybe it's your sexuality. Maybe it's, it's the idea of comfort. Being in control, maybe it's your self-image. All of these things are things that we could be holding on to so tight that we can't let go to grab a hold of Jesus. Jesus wants to get in your face about that. Not like some bully, but graciously. He says, let me bring disruption to your life so I can offer you the peace that only I can offer you. This is the most loving thing that Jesus can do. 
Sometimes the most loving thing that you can do is the hard thing. It's the hard word. Nine times out of ten. I don't know. I made up that statistic. But a lot, of, a lot of times, the hard word is the good word. The hard word is the loving word. Nobody likes to be a jerk. I mean, maybe. You can blow that. that, that scratch that from the tape. Some people like to be a jerk, but not very many people like to be a jerk to the people they love. See, in Mark's account of this, this interaction, Mark says that Jesus looked at this rich young ruler and he loved him. Now, how could Jesus love this guy and let him walk away sorrowful? Is this a waste? Did, did Jesus fail at making disciples? Did he fail at evangelism? No. Jesus is revealing the hearts of man. He's showing you what is ultimate in your heart, what has that supreme spot. And he is graciously trying to to dethrone that, to put himself there instead, which would significantly improve your life. Now, I'm not just talking about like riches and fame and glamour, right? Because this passage itself doesn't really lend itself to saying that. But he's saying What you want, that perfection that you long for, that wholeness, that completeness, I can give that to you and nothing else can. It's so interesting here that Jesus, the peacemaker, takes a sword to the jugular of your idolatries. (laughs) He's not reckless, though. He's not reckless. He, he's like a skilled surgeon gently making the incision, the incision that's made to heal. Not to wound for the sake of wounding. He's not a warrior. He's a healer. He goes right to the jugular of the idolatries. It's a kill shot, not a truce. See, Jesus, the peacemaker, the only way to really bring peace is to dethrone, to eliminate, to remove the things that are competing for that number one spot. Jesus is not a a truce maker. He's a peacemaker. He doesn't just say to the rich and ruler, give away 50%. He doesn't say, just make make your tithe, your 10% tithe. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. He goes right after. He says, give it all away there's something in your hands today that Jesus wants you to let go of so that you can grab something better see that's what he's offering heavenly riches eternally is eternally glorious riches that rust or moth cannot destroy but the rich young ruler cannot see how much better that is than the piddly things that he has his heart set on It reminds me of a quote from C.S. Lewis that says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He says, we are far too easily pleased. Jesus is offering him something infinitely better, but the rich young ruler turns it away. Now, there is something to be said about this, because this is one of the pieces that most people don't like about the story. There's no closure here, right? In the ideal story, 
He walks away. He comes back the next day. He says, Jesus, I'm ready to, I'm ready to follow you. I'll, I'll sell everything that I have. There's none of that. It lingers. Jesus is willing to let you sleep on it. He's got patience. He's got time, more time than you do. He's willing to give you space. But here's what what I want to caution you on. If you just say, yeah, I'll put that on the back burner. I'll think about it some other day. You might very well be doing what the rich young ruler, closing the door to the kingdom of heaven on yourself. Friends, I don't want that for you. Jesus doesn't want that for you, but he's willing to give you space. And I'm not just talking about first-time, believe, first-time believers this morning, right? People who are maybe on the, on the brink of faith, those who are inquisitive about, about what Christianity is about. This also applies to people who've been following Jesus for a long time. See, even to you, even to those who are faithful, Jesus is offering you, come, follow me. Deeper, come, come, come even greater with me. The kingdom of heaven is not just about getting in. If we think that the kingdom of heaven is just about getting in and by the skin of our teeth, then we're going to miss it. The kingdom of heaven is about being with Jesus. Christian, Jesus wants all of you. He wants to be with you. And so he's willing to dethrone the things that are, are looming supreme in your heart. Now, it's only when Jesus has brought the sword to our idolatries can we find this peace that we're looking for. Now, ultimately, that's what the rich young ruler wanted. He wanted the peace of assurance to know that he had made it into the kingdom of heaven. But as long as money was supreme in his heart, he would always feel that anxiety. No matter how much riches or power or influence he would accumulate, he would still feel that void. So Jesus offered him what would fill that, void, fill that void. The only thing that could possibly satisfy him. Jesus offered him himself. Jesus is saying that, that when I am all that you have, when Jesus is the thing that you supremely value in your heart, you'll have everything you need, even when you have nothing else. Friends, Jesus is wanting to lay a blow to your idolatry so that he can offer you real peace this Advent. The real Jesus yields a sword, so do not sidestep the blow of the peacemaker. See, if you do this, you'll miss the greatest gift that Jesus could possibly offer himself. Jesus' invitation is an invitation into relationship. And so I want to encourage you, do not, do not walk away sorrowful like the rich young ruler. Learn from his mistakes. See, dethroning something that's in your heart, that's seated supremely, can hurt quite a bit, actually. But a moment of affliction by the peacemaker will always result in a piece of epic proportions, a piece that you can't even fathom. The, the rich young ruler, maybe, maybe that's where he was limited in his imagination. He couldn't imagine what it was like 
to know the completeness that Jesus offered. He didn't have the, the full picture of it. He didn't understand what was going on. But that's one thing that we have that the rich young ruler didn't have. We have a different perspective. See, we can see because of our point in time, we can look back on the life of Jesus and see how Jesus offers a peace that quiets your deepest anxieties that say, I'm not good enough. Keep trying. See, because Jesus was perfect where you and I aren't, and he died in your place, we don't have to ask the question, what else must I do? Jesus has fulfilled it. He has opened wide the doors of the kingdom of heaven for you. Doors that you couldn't move yourself. See, Jesus offers you a peace that allows you to thrive with nothing else in your hands but Jesus. So you could say, take the world, but give me Jesus. It kills your need to constantly be striving for something. Or, or for some of us, it's, it's constantly trying to protect what we have. Jesus removes that, that fear, that anxiety, that burden that you feel in your life. He says, because of me and because of the spirit in you, nothing can be taken from you. You have everything you need for life and godliness. And here's the last thing. That Jesus offers you a peace that only intensifies with time. The more you dive into relationship with Jesus, the more you're with Jesus, the more that peace grows and intensifies. That feeling of completeness becomes more thorough. So as I close, let me just leave you with, with one question and a quote. Here's my question. What is seated supreme in your heart? What is seated supreme in your heart? What, what is it that Jesus wants to dethrone so, he, so you can have more of him? Where would Jesus' sword head in your life? Where would he, he come to bring correction, the, the incision to bring about healing? Where is he confronting you? What do you need to let go of so you can lay hold of something greater? That's my question, and here's the quote. Jim Elliott, he was a martyr, said something very profound. And I, I can't help but think that he was influenced by the story of the rich young ruler when he said this, but he said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot, cannot lose. Today, Jesus is offering himself to you this very day. And in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Jesus is inviting you to outstretch your hands. And in the void of your hands, he says, you know what I'm going to put there? I'm going to put myself. I'm going to put my body. I'm going to put my blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. The body and blood, the wounds that are working to heal you. Jesus is offering you himself today.
lay hold of it. You cannot lose it. Gracious Father, we thank you this Advent season for your son, Jesus, and the gift of life that he has offered us. And it is not in doing, it's not in performing, it's not being more moral, it's not in keeping more commandments. It's finding Jesus as the supreme treasure of our heart. In, in the chaos and the, the disorganization of, of the Advent season, as we hyper-commercialize society, would you help us to resist the pull to put other things there? Prove to us that Jesus is worthy of that spot in our heart. For no other God has come to earth and put on flesh who experienced our sorrows, who went to the cross and faced the agony of sin and death of the curse to bring about the renewal and restoration of those who put their faith in him. Give us eyes to see Christ this Advent season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If the men who are serving would come forward.